settling down, let me remind you of two basic um, two basic announcements. First of all, on September the 22nd, we're going to have our, our men's prayer breakfast and then a deacon's meeting. And then on October the 20th, a month later, we'll have our annual church picnic out at Orlando's, that is, if it doesn't rain. So you never know around here. We, I don't think we made it last year. Rain got rained out then and before, so we'll always give it another shot. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, uh, walking by the Spirit, uh, depending upon him for guidance, direction in our lives, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can Make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord through confession of sin, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a wonderful time it is in our lives to be able to come together to talk about you, talk about your word, learn from uh, what you have revealed to us, be challenged to understand, especially as we go forward tonight in terms of understanding some important aspects of who we are as members of the body of Christ in the church and help us to understand certain key scriptures related to how we are to organize and the focus of leaders in the church. Help us to understand these things, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and we're just going to get started here. And then uh, we're going to go into a study related to church leadership and part of a study of ecclesiology. So what Peter is talking about here is the importance of the role of these leaders identified as elders in verse 1 and that they are to shepherd the flock of God serving as overseers. And the whole point here is ultimately going, feeds into this theme that he develops in this last part of his epistle related to the importance of humility. So that fundamentally, the idea of Christian leadership, of leadership in a local church, is leadership based on humility, leadership based on the concept of service, serving the body of Christ, serving the Lord through the body of Christ. And it's always, sometimes it's really irritated me as I've had to deal with it. Uh, Sometimes it has uh, amazed me that people will get into church leadership because that gives them an area where they can exercise their power lust. And they they lose complete sight of the fact that, that their role, whether they're a pastor, whether they're an elder, whether they're a deacon, that their role is to serve the Lord and they get all uh, bent out of shape over it because they're fundamentally uh, operating on, on their own arrogance from their sin nature. So what we're going to do is, <clears throat> again, kind of review over these first four verses and then develop our understanding of what's going on here in terms of church government and what this teaches us about it in the early church. So we'll go back to the beginning as we get there. 
So in these four verses, Peter says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now I wanted to just point out a few things I did last time. First of all, he is addressing the leaders in this region not a singular local church. I think that's important to understand because when he addresses elders, and we'll get into this much later uh, as we talk about the different types of church government, one of which is one that's identified as elder rule, sometimes the plurality of elders. And so that is assumed that what is talked about is uh, a since the word elder is in the plural here, that this would support the idea of a congregations with a plurality of elders. But he's not addressing one congregation. He's addressing uh, those who are scattered in Bithynia and Pontus and other areas in central and north-central uh, Turkey, what we refer to as Turkey today. And so this does not support a view of multiple elders are an elder board. Now, we're going to get into a lot of other issues related to that. I'm just pointing this out. And that this is addressed, though, to the leaders of multiple congregations. And so it could be uh, multiple leaders in singular congregations, plural, or it could be talking about um, just each congregation has one elder. That view is also known as a single pastor or single elder view. So he's addressing them as a fellow elder. And I last time, I think I pointed out, or at least raised the question, why does he refer to himself as a fellow elder and not as an apostle as he does in the first verse? And I think the reason is, is because the point that he's making here is the point of service and humility from leadership. And so he's not coming to them from a point of, of his apostolic authority telling them what they're supposed to do. He is coming to them, challenging them to lead in terms of humility and let that be the motivation uh, for their service, thinking in terms of ultimate future accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is indicated by the last line where he says, and uh, that he said, refers to himself as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now, when is that glory revealed? It's revealed at the rapture of the church when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and those who are dead in Christ will rise first Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And it's immediately after that that the judgment seat of Christ occurs. And this is when Christ is glorified by the good works, by the obedience of the church. So he packs a lot into that first verse. And he's emphasizing himself as an elder because as a leader, he falls under the same category of being a servant leader as, as they do. And then in the next verse, he says, uh, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. And I've underlined these terms, elder, and then the verb shepherd and the noun, um, or the actually it's a verb, it's a participle, is overseers. That, uh, and we'll look at those terms because we have to understand how the New Testament is viewing leadership. That's why we need to go back to the beginning of the church. And then he says, uh, gives several descriptions of how they are to uh, characterize uh, how their ministry should be. Uh, should be characterized to describe uh, what that is all about. And so the first thing that he says is that they are to shepherd by means of oversight. They shepherd, that is your primary command here. 
uh, to shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers. And that word for overseers is the word uh, episkopos. And it has the idea of oversight. It's where we get our the, con, the, the word for bishop. Bishop is a translation of episkopos, but you think of epi, the word episkopos, you think of the Episcopal Church. The reason it was called the Episcopal Church in America is because it was part of, originally part of the Anglican Church in England. But if you're fighting a war against England, a war for independence, then it, it's not going to be a good thing if you're identifying yourself as an Anglican, which is a word that refers to being English. Okay, they, the word England comes from the uh, tribal group, the Angles. The Angles, the Saxons, and the and the Jutes were the uh, three of the main tribes that settled, conquered in that area before the Norman conquest. Uh, came in and you had the introduction of French and so the English are really a group of uh, quite a few different uh, ethnic ethnic backgrounds and so the American church shifted the American Anglican church separated from the British Anglican church and redefined themselves and reinvented themselves as Episcopals, because they held to an Episcopal form of government. And the Episcopal form of government goes back to the early church, at least to around 135, when you begin to see the elevation of one pastor in a, in a town or city above all of the other pastors. And so then, instead of using the terms pastor and bishop synonymously, they began to draw a distinction between uh, the bishop and the other pastors. He's the pastor over the pastors. But that's not a biblical distinction. That's not drawn from any biblical passage. And so it was an element of organization that occurred. And so the Episcopal form of government is one that has a hierarchy uh, where you have pastors who are under the authority of uh, of a bishop, and then those bishops are under a higher authority of an archbishop, and so on. And we'll get into details related to that and the history of that uh, a little later on. But the main, the primary meaning for this word is the idea of of gain of oversight. It is an administrative idea. Taking uh, it has the idea of caretaking, uh, management, administration. Uh, to some degree, but it's always related to the concept of the Word of God. We'll get into this more as we uh, look at the uh, term for shepherd, but the word poimino is the verb here, and it means to shepherd or to feed or to lead. And our definition for that that we get in the Scripture is in John chapter uh, John chapter 21. And this is when Jesus is talking to Peter and asks him three times, uh, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And, and Peter would respond and say, I love you. And then Jesus would say, feed my lambs or feed, tend my sheep. Um, and so the point is that the pastoral role is focused on the nourishment of God's flock, feeding them. First uh, Peter two two Peter says uh, to desire the sincere milk of the word like a newborn babe, and the command there is to desire it. It's not a statement; it is a mandate that we are to hunger and thirst for the word of God because that is uh, that is our nourishment. So the elders, that's the noun, are to shepherd. That's their purpose. Uh, to shepherd the flock of God by serving. It would be an instrumental participle there by serving as overseers, by watching over um, the flock of God. And then the second thing that it says out that is emphasized here is that this is something that should be done uh, 
uh, willingly, skip a couple of slides here, they are to serve as overseers and they are to do it uh, willingly, not under any kind of compulsion, not under any kind of constraint. And uh, this is a word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's the idea that a congregation is not just going to uh, grab somebody and force them into the position just because somebody uh, needs to take it. This should be something that he uh, freely and willfully uh, desires to do. A third thing that he says is that this is um, to be done uh, according to the will of God. And that's the idea of his being uh, voluntarily doing this. He is serving the Lord. It's not something that's specifically stated here, but that's what underlies the idea that it's not by compulsion. He's not forced into it, but he's doing it of his own volition uh, to serve the Lord. Uh, another thing that we see here, uh, fourth thing, is that it's not for the desire of financial gain. Uh, literally, uh, the, the, uh, it's translated not for dishonest gain, but the Greek word just means greedily. He's not doing it out of greed. He's not doing it out of a money lust. He's not doing it to take advantage and to gain from the congregation. And I pointed out last time uh, a couple of examples that you see today in this health and wealth gospel uh, movement that has come out of the charismatic church, but it's not just there. Uh, I can tell you stories of pastors who I know personally, and it's been reported to me uh, on some others, that they will have the collection taken up on Sunday morning, and then that collection is taken back by some a trustworthy deacon and is put on the pastor's desk, and then the door is locked to his office, and when the pastor comes back, the pastor pockets all of the cash and then deposits the checks that are made out to the church because he can't get away with taking that for himself. And so there's no accountability. No one other than the pastor ever counts the money. And I know a number of pastors who do this, and this is just completely wrong. A pastor should never have anything to do with the money in the church other than making sure that everything is handled above board and that there are checks and balances. This is one reason I don't even have a key to the office back there, which is where the financial records are kept and where the money is kept. And I have no idea other than the uh, and, uh, the monthly or quarterly reports that come out uh, what the finances of the church are. Uh, I don't think a pastor should know that. I don't think a pastor should know uh, what what anybody gives or who the big givers are or anything like that because this then can affect and impact his his actions and his thoughts and his opinions of people. And so he needs to be able to be completely blind to who's giving, who's not giving. It's not any of his business. It is between each individual and the Lord. And accountability is not to the pastor. The accountability is not to the, uh, the board of the church. The accountability is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will show up at the judgment seat of Christ. So the purpose is not to gain something, to get something out of it. It is to, uh, to serve, and it is to be done um, eagerly. And eagerly has the idea of being, um, be, being passionate about it. It has that idea of, of being ready and prepared for it. Uh, so that, as Paul says in First Timothy, you sh he warns Timothy not to lay hands on somebody too young. You have to have somebody who's mature in the Word, and this is a real problem today, in in our in our church cultures, is because 
we do not have cultures in the church where we emphasize and encourage people to spend a lot of time meditating in the Word. Now, I'm not speaking about West Houston Bible Church. I'm talking about across the board as American evangelicals. Their Christian life, the instruction, the study, the reading, the assimilation of the Word is just something that's an afterthought in many Christians' life. They're just too busy. They've got to raise their kids. They've got to do this and do that. Whereas what they miss out on, it is the immersion in the Word and the Word's immersion in their souls that informs child-rearing, that informs uh, how they work as an employer or employee, that builds a, a framework in the soul. It's not a direct line sort of thing, but it builds a capacity and a framework in the soul for decision-making and how to deal with people and how to deal with situations that transforms their lives and it impacts how they be how they are able to function as an employer as an employee as a father as a mother uh, as a teacher uh, whatever it may be and so there has to be that that uh, desire to prioritize that relationship with the lord that's what builds depth in people and one of the things that i've pointed out in in when i've talked about worship and i've talked about contemporary Christian music and how shallow and superficial it is, I'm not talking about that because I'm trying to bash people over the head, but can but to get people to think about what we sing. And the words that we find that are written today, even among some of some people who are are touted as modern hymn writers, where they do understand that there is that 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 sort of the contemporary form of music isn't correct. These writers don't have much depth in what they write because they they haven't reflected on the word. The word hasn't hasn't immersed itself into their soul. When you go back and you read what was written and understood a hundred and fifty years ago. And you, you realize how shallow we are. I mean, I go back and I read, you know, 18th century. They're hard to read because we don't write like that anymore. And they're difficult. But that's how people wrote and that's how they talked. And so people understood. I remember saying, telling this in my first church. And I read some paragraphs. And people said, well, they couldn't understand them then any more than we could understand them now. And that just isn't true. They did understand them. I have just got a book. It's a reprint of a series of sermons preached by an English pastor on sacrifice. And I've been reading through that in conjunction with what I've been teaching on on Tuesday nights. And these are taken from his sermons. It has more depth and is more profound than a lot of systematic theologies that I have read. And that is because when you didn't have television and you didn't have radio and you didn't have this entertainment culture that distracts us and 90% of our non-working time, then you had time to really think and reflect upon what you were reading and to memorize the word and let that really uh, work in your soul. And it created a depth of their relationship to, to God out of which their service to God, their teaching, their hymn writing, uh, their witnessing all all came. It, it derived from that root. But if you don't have people who can take the time and sacrifice the time so they spend it with the Lord in his word, then you're not going to have the kind of depth in their personal relationship with the Lord that is necessary. And this is what we see here in this this terminology related to being ready, to being prepared, to being uh, eager about serving the Lord. The next thing that we see is um, the attitude and the mentality of leadership in 5.3, not as lording it over those who are entrusted to you. 
You're not taking advantage of them. It's not a power trip. It's not about approbation. It's not about recognition. And it is, um, it's amazing as I have been in some situations, as I have been in some churches that are uh, extremely formal and ritualistic and liturgical where the uh, bishops and archbishops and on up the chain of command wear all of these extravagant robes and symbols of their position and their authority and as they walk and move around with their assistance and others following them the you can watch the arrogance and the haughtiness in the way they move and the way they relate to other people this is not the biblical view of pastoral leadership we're not to lord our uh, our, their, our authority over those, but instead we're to be examples to the flock. That means we are to emulate to the best that we can in our own spiritual growth, no pastor is perfect, uh, that we are to emulate Christ so that to some degree as we, as Paul says, as he imitated Christ so they were to imitate him, in the way that he imitated Christ. Now, there were times, because Paul was a sinner, that he certainly didn't uh, obey the Lord. He disobeyed the Lord. I'm sure he got angry, many other sins. That wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about emulating his life as he walked by the Spirit. And so this is the role of a pastor. It is to the degree that he's walking with the Lord to be an example uh, to the flock. And then Peter closes this section. He says, and then, this is the motivation, the long-term goal, living today in light of eternity. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The implication here is that the elders who are shepherding are under shepherds. We're not the ultimate authority. There's not a human authority over us. There's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one to whom we are answerable. And when the chief shepherd appears, that refers to the rapture because the Lord is going to come in the clouds and he is going to take us, both the dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain, to be with him in the air. And that's the time when the judgment seat of Christ will take place. And for those who are faithful as shepherds, faithfully serving the Lord as shepherds, then there is a crown of glory for them a glorious crown. It could refer to a specific kind of crown, or it could just be the genitive here could just be an adjectival genitive that it's going to be a glorious crown. But the reason that that is distributed is going to be because of of service to the Lord in obedience to him. Now, as we get into this, because we've talked about three different key terms that are used to describe leaders in the church, and because I've not taught much on this uh, over the years, what I want to do is take uh, a couple of weeks. This is not going to be like the worship series, okay? This isn't going to be six months. This will just be a short two- or three-week sub-series to understand some basics about leadership in the church, And so we're going to look at this just as an introduction and study what the Bible teaches about the church. We're going to get in this in a lot of depth soon on Sunday morning when we get into our study of Ephesians, because a lot of Ephesians is related to uh, the church and and, and believers as being members of the church, the body of Christ. The technical term for this in terms of systematic theology is ecclesiology because the word translated church is ecclesia and it's combined with the uh, Greek suffix from logos and it means the study of the church. Now as we approach this, I thought there were several things that we needed to address before we get into Uh, some nuts and bolts. First of all, we need to look at the basic terminology. 
This is important for a couple of reasons, one of which is that when you are dealing with somebody who holds to covenant theology, Reformed theology, uh, Lutheran theology, Roman Catholic theology, much of Anglican theology, it is rooted in the idea of, uh, of, of, of um, allegorical interpretation that in the Old Testament you have Israel uh, is really the church in the Old Testament. And the reason they say that is because they'll look and they'll say, look at all these places in the Septuagint where the word for assembly is translated by the word ecclesia. So they would say, see, you have the church in the Old Testament, and so they see Israel as the church in the Old Testament, and the church in the New Testament is the new Israel, is spiritual Israel. This is the foundation uh, hermeneutically on uh, of replacement theology. Uh, just to take a, a minute here, because I kept thinking about doing this, and I never did, but about three weeks ago, I went to Dallas, and I went to an event. It's my third time to be invited to come and speak at Temple Shalom, which is a Reformed synagogue in north-central Dallas. And three years ago, as I've told you before, there was a man in the Dallas area who thought his desire was to get more education um, in the Jewish community about things related to Israel and legislation and what Israel is doing positively and lots of different uh, issues that are part of the pro-Israel community and to have a one-day seminar at a synagogue there that would uh, have a lot of different speakers and workshops talking about lots of different things. And I never get to go to the fun stuff anymore. The fun stuff is the guy who comes over from Lockheed Martin and talks and does a slideshow and talks all about the capabilities of the F-35 and what the Israelis are doing with it. Uh, one of the neat things that has happened in our relation, the U.S. relationship with Israel, um, in fact, Yorm Edinger tells this story that about uh, 15, 20 years ago, he was in with the in the office with the president of Lockheed Martin at that time, and they were talking about the fact that that the U.S. Uh, uh, gives money to to Israel, but but Yorm emphasizes that that it's not giving money, it's an investment because that money comes back to the U.S. in lots of different ways. And the president of Lockheed Martin said, yeah, Israel is our research and development uh, branch because we build the F-16 and we send it over there and then within a couple of weeks we get long lists of of improvements that we need to make to all the computer systems and all the other uh, engineering systems on the F-16. And so over the years, what has made the F-16 such a great uh, fighter uh, plane is because of the work of the Israelis. And the same thing is true about uh, the F-35. And then there were some other workshops this year. There was a, um, a fascinating development in, in surgery. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a virtual reality scenario where you go to some place and you put the helmet on and you get to go someplace where you look and it feels like you're right there at this location. There's several of you uh, were in D.C. for the Museum of the Bible trip, and we went to the National Geographic Museum, and we got to put on these virtual reality helmets and go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I'm telling you, it was better than going to the actual Church of the Holy Sepulchre because we got to even elevate ourselves up high and look down. We could see things we'd never seen before. I discovered some things to look at that I had never noticed before in going there. And so when we went in June... I w was able to look at these things. I made it a point to get to the church much later than than um, just right before it closed. Nobody was in the edicule. This is the inner building that covers the area where the resurrection occurred. And I was able to go in there. Nobody else was there. And I was able to look at this detail that I had first discovered by going through the high-definition uh, uh, exhibit in, in Washington, D.C. So they've used this high-definition 
uh, technology to map your brain. Not somebody else's brain, your brain. It goes in, they map your brain, and then the surgeon is able to, by putting on this helmet, he's able to go in and look around in the nooks and crannies of your brain as he prepares to do surgery. And they had an example of of one of the doctors talking there about how uh, he had com- planned this very complicated surgery that there was a tumor and it was in an awkward place. And he had a uh, complete plan. He had gotten permission from the uh, patient to do this this surgery, exactly what he was going to do. But when he put this tech, this helmet on, this technology, he went in and he discovered that that, uh, that approach was not going to work. And so he discovered what would work, and he went back to the patient, and he explained why the original idea was not going to work at all, but what he was going to do. And in fact, they put the the virtual reality helmet on the patient so that he could see what the doctor was talking about on how he was going to operate on his own on his brain. It's just phenomenal. But I don't get to see this. I just get this second hand. But I talk on two two subjects. Trust me, this is uh, this is going to be relevant um, as we get into this. Uh, I talk on two subjects. One subject is on why Christians support Israel, and the other question is why um, why Christians support Israel. The other subject this year had to do with the interdependence and the um, interconnection between Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism. And I got some interesting questions from people uh, because in my talk on why Christians support Israel, I identified um, uh, I had identified four or five characteristics of evangelicalism. Evangelicals, and one of the points was they believe that a person is saved by faith and not by works. And one Jewish man on the back row raised his hand and said, I have, "What does that mean? You're saved by grace and not by works." So it's a great opportunity to explain the gospel uh, and and gives me that opportunity. And then um, one of the things that I do at the beginning of both of those talks is to talk about the history and how anti-Semitism entered into the church and that in the early church you originally had a literal interpretation it gets taken over by allegorical interpretation so that Israel no longer means Israel. The church doesn't mean the church. Israel in the Old Testament refers to the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament refers to uh, spiritual Israel and that this is the root of replacement theology which is the soil out of which the, the, the weeds of Christian anti-Semitism uh, grow. And so this takes us back into that first century. And so it's so important to understand the difference between allegorical interpretation and literal interpretation. And so this begins to impact the understanding of the church. And so it's so important to answer that second question, when did the church begin? Because in allegorical interpretation, the church began with Abraham. Or some of them might say it began with Adam, but it's not Pentecost. And only those who hold to a literal interpretation who are mostly dispensationalists understand that the church began on the day of Pentecost in 33. So we have to address that question. Third, how did leadership develop in the early church as described in Acts? On the first day, you get 5,000 who are saved. You get 4,000 men saved the second uh, second day or shortly thereafter. And probably within the first two weeks, you had forty or 50,000 new believers. How are you going to organize them? How are you going to meet? Who's going to teach them? What are you going to do in terms of administering this group? So how did is that develop? What do we see in, in the early part of Acts? Um, and that leads us into a study of history moving beyond the Bible into the development of the three basic forms of church government, congregational, uh, Presbyterian, or elder rule, 
and Episcopal. Those are the three broad forms of church government. And then fifth, we're going to look at the uh, scriptural terms that are used for biblical leaders. And then sixth, we're going to look at the roles of deacons and elders as we get into uh, into this study. And one of the questions we need to address is, does the Bible talk about, uh, for example, how many elders should there be? How many deacons should they be? And you, you have... Uh, if you look out at, at, at a number of doctrinal churches around, there are some that have a deacon form, which I'll refer to mostly as a Baptist polity or a Baptist form of government. Baptist form of government is traditionally congregational with deacons and a single leader, pastor, or sometimes they're referred to as as elder also within the Baptist uh, polity, but it's one single leader who is the, the pastor, the uh, elder of the church. And so we need to look at all of these kinds of questions. So as we get started, in terms of uh, terminology, the Greek word that is translated uh, church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it is translated as a congregation, an assembly, or a church. The word really breaks down into two components. If you look at the uh, uh, etymology of the word ek, ek at the beginning is a Greek preposition meaning out of or out from, and klesia is based on the Greek verb kaleo, which means to be called out. Now, if I were ignorant of Greek and I were uh, teaching something that is logically and and uh, scripturally flawed, I would say that that means that ecclesia means the called out ones. That's what's known as the etymological fallacy, that a word is not determined by, it, a word's meaning is not determined by its, um, by its, um, Etymology, it's determined by its usage. And often the meaning of a word ha- is more than the sum of its parts. It doesn't just mean a group that's called out from, even though you can see, well, okay, I can understand that. That makes sense. We're called out from the world. But, but the word has a whole history that goes back to the 6th, 7th, or 8th century B.C. in Greece, which is long before it was used to translate the Greek, uh, I mean, the Old Testament into the Greek Septuagint or to write the New Testament. Uh, So this is a word basically that was used to refer to an assembly. And it was common in 5th and 6th century B.C., especially in the city-states of Greece, that the citizens of the polis or the city were required to meet at regular intervals. In Athens, they had a true democracy. All the citizens met and made the decision. It wasn't a representative form of government. It was everybody came together and everybody met. Well, of course, with uh, they would meet 30 or 40 times a year. Now, there are some congregational governments that, that are almost like that in some smaller churches. The first church I had... The deacons were afraid to make any kind of decision, so anything that's significant that came up, they said, well, we need to tell the congregation about it and have a congregational vote. It wasn't a large congregation. There were probably about 70 or 80 members that would show up at a congregational meeting, but that's, that's, they, they fell into this trap of everybody needs to vote on everything kind of thing, and it just becomes uh, very much unwieldy. But that's how ecclesia was used to describe the assembly of the citizens uh, uh, of Athens. And then as it, you get into the Old Testament, it's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's used in passages like Deuteronomy 30, 30, 31, 30, and Judges 20, verse 2. And here it would, had the idea of uh, much as it did in, in, in Greek thought, the idea of calling together a muster of the troops, that you're calling together the people to put together a, 
the army and you're calling for volunteers. And so in the Old Testament, it's, it's a term for the assembly of Israel. And several times it's also used to refer to the assembly of the men, the military age men to go into battle uh, to protect uh, the nation. And so it should, it's not a technical meaning of, for those who are saved. It's not a technical meaning for the meeting in the, in, in, around the temple. And even later, it's not uh, a word that is used uh, for the assembly of Jews in local smaller towns away from Jerusalem. That word was synagogue, which is a synonym. Uh, it also means, uh, has to do with assembly. The first time that we see the word ecclesia used in the New Testament is in the Gospel of Matthew. And interestingly, this word is not used outside of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's only used twice there. It's used in Matthew sixteen eighteen. This is a <clears throat> this is a verse we've studied many times in context. Jesus and his disciples went to the far north in Israel, their near place called Caesarea uh, Philippi, which was also um, uh, a place where there was a temple to the Greek god Pan. That's with a P, as in Paul. But this location today is referred to as Banyas. That's B. Uh, as in boy. And the reason is, is because in Arabs do not have the letter P. So they can't pronounce the letter P. There's a new show that popped up on, um, I guess, Amazon Prime this last week based on Tom Clancy's character, Jack Ryan. I've already watched all eight episodes. We we binged it over the weekend. It's it, it's really good, but but you have your subtitles because the characters who are who are your Arabs are talking in Arabic, and I caught it right away in the first episode. There's a little girl talking to her father and calls him Baba because they and that's how it came across in the you know in the in the uh, subscript there in the subtitles. It's Baba. And that's because they can't say Papa. What that also means is there's no such thing as a Palestinian. Only Palestinians. Okay, so they're up there at Pan. You've got this huge rock cavern, this cave that goes into the ground that was called the Gates of Hell because Pan is a god uh, down in Hades. And so as Jesus is there, this huge rock escarpment, he does a play on words there, and he's talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, on this rock, after he asked Peter, he says, who who men say that I am? And Peter said, well, some say Elijah, and some say John the Baptist. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're Jesus, uh, the Son of God. And Jesus said, then says to him, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So I think Jesus is talking about himself because all through the Old Testament, God is called the rock. And so Jesus is talking about himself on this rock, on him. He will build my church. That's my point since we're talking about the church. It's future at this point. It's not past. He can't be talking about the past in terms of Israel, he's talking about the future in terms of this new organism that is going to come into existence at some undefined stage in the future, at least at this point. We know that that came into existence on the the day of Pentecost. So he doesn't say anything else there. They would probably just interpreted him to be talking about an assembly, in Matthew eighteen seventeen, the context is how do, many times do you forgive someone? And Peter asks him the question uh, about forgiveness, and Jesus said, you remember, it's not seven, seven times seven, it's 70 times seven. And you know what Peter said? He said, oh, I not only have to forgive him 490 times, I have to do math. 
So Matthew eighteen seventeen is just talking about this procedure that if you are offended by somebody, you go to them, you seek to uh, uh, resolve the situation. If that doesn't work, then you go with a couple of witnesses. And if that work doesn't work, he says, tell it to the church. Well, there's no church at that point. He's not talking about that. He's talking totally within a Jewish context. And what he's referring to there probably is the synagogue. You tell it to the assembly. It's a non-technical use of the word ecclesia. It's used non-technically many times uh, as well in the book of Acts. So uh, the term is not used in the Gospels for the church except in Matthew 16, 18. Not in Mark, not in Luke, not in John. In the Old Testament, it translated the word kahal in in the Hebrew. What's interesting is kahal or or ekklesia only translates kahal. There were other synonyms in the Old Testament for an assembly, but ekklesia was never used for those other words. It only translates kahal, but it doesn't. It's not used in every. Uh, translation of kahal. Sometimes uh, other Greek words were used that were uh, that were synonyms. And in, for example, in Ezekiel, uh, it it translates uh, it's translated uh, kahal is translated as synagogue. And in Jeremiah, it's also translated as uh, by by the Greek word synagogue. So you can't make the mistake of saying that the use of ecclesia in the Septuagint indicates that there was a church in the Old Testament. It just doesn't work, and we'll get into some more details on that uh, in just a minute. What you do have, this is from Abbott Smith's manual lexicon of the Greek New Testament. He says, here are the three meanings. He says, first of all, it's an assembly of citizens that are regularly convened. And there he cites Acts 19, 32, 39, and 41. That's Paul talking. Paul is talking about the assembly uh, in Ephesus. He's not, talking about, uh, he's not talking about the church. Second, Abbot Smith says in the Septuagint, uh, it refers to the assembly, the congregation, or the community of Israel. He doesn't say it's talking about the church in the Old Testament. This is what a this is on just pure lexical uh, data, and then in the New Testament he says especially of an assembly or com- a company of Christians. This is backed up same way by the Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich Greek lexicon that it refers to a regular uh, regularly summoned legislative body or assembly as in Acts nineteen thirty nine. Uh, that it can refer to a casual gathering of people, an assembly or gathering in Acts 19.32 and 40. And then they cite the third and people with a shared belief, community or congregation, uh, specifically the church. Okay, so that's what the lexicons say. You don't put the church into, into the Old Testament. Now, we also learn that there are some critical passages that talk about... Um, a distinction between a local body of believers and the church universal. Now, I'll talk more about this as we go on, but tonight I'm just giving introduction to this, that the Bible makes a distinction between the local visible assembly of believers or assumed to be believers, which is what we have here. So we have the church of West Houston Bible Church. We have a church at Preston City in Connecticut. You have a church at First Baptist Church of Houston and uh, First Presbyterian and so on. These are local assemblies that are made up of people who identify as Christians, even though, all, may, may, even though some of them may not be regenerate. And then there is the universal body of believers who is a, is the whole body of Christ is the is composed of all of those who have believed in Jesus as Savior from the day of Pentecost. Excuse me, from the day of Pentecost until the Lord comes back at the rapture. It's composed of those who are already uh, dead and are awaiting for the rapture. Their souls are face to face with the Lord. And it's composed of those who are still alive on the earth. And so this is the called or referred to as the universal church, 
the body of believers. And evidence for this is given in several passages. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his. His refers back to Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church. So here he uses the term church in a broader sense than a local individual assembly, and it is uh, in apposition or, or in a relative clause that is defining his, what he means by body. And then in Colossians 2.19, he is talking negatively about those who are not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? This is a statement of authority. They're not holding fast to the head from whom all the body. See, again, it refers to the church as the body, the universal church, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So these passages emphasize the church as the body of Christ and Christ as the head or the authority over the body using the human body as a metaphor. You have other passages such as Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So he refers to the church, the universal church, as his body, and he's the one in authority. And so just as a side note, when you have this view from uh, um, Christian egalitarians, there's been a huge fight since the 60s, a lot of discussion over the role of women in the church, and there are many right now, sadly, in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention fighting this. The other other uh, denominations have already caved in on this due to the pressure from um, feminism, But the idea here is that the marriage is a reflection of this uh, mysterious union between Christ and the church. And so if you break down or change the uh, economic roles or the functional roles of wives and husbands, then it is change. It's going to change and do damage to your view of Christ and the church. And that creates a blasphemous situation where you are attacking um, attacking the nature of this union between Christ and the church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the authority over the church and the savior of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul uh, talks about spiritual gifts, but he says, you are all in the body of Christ. It's not just the Corinthians. They're part of the body of Christ as well. Uh, but all believers are part of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 4, he says there's one body, not multiple bodies. You don't have a body at First Baptist, another body at First Presbyterian, another body at Preston City, another body here. You have one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And then in Ephesians 4.12, the purpose of these gifts, the four leadership communication gifts mentioned in 4.11, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying, that is the building up the education of the body of Christ. And so it's not talking about one assembly, one local body of Christ. So that takes us through a basic understanding of the terminology. Now, the next question is, when did the church begin? When did the church begin? Did it begin in the Old Testament, or did it begin on the day of Pentecost in A.D. uh, 33? And the first point is that um, we have to understand what the passages we just looked at are saying, Colossians 1.24 and 2.19, that the church is the body of Christ. Seems to me that implies that before Christ, you can't have his body. You can't have a church before, uh, before Christ is incarnate. So first 
point is that the church is uh, did not exist in the Old Testament. He makes it. Paul makes it clear that it was not foreseen or prophesied in the Old Testament. It was called a mystery. The term mystery refers to a previously unrevealed truth. So that uh, the Old Testament knew nothing of a future group called the church uh, where Jew and Gentile would be united in one body. Remember in the Old Testament, Jew and Gentile are separated the Jews could go, uh, male Jews could go past this wall in the courtyard that was called the the um, uh, the area for the Gentiles, the wall of the Gentiles. And so Gentiles, there's a statement there uh, that Gentiles could not go beyond that wall. And so that was the courtyard of the Gentiles. And uh, so only Jews could go into the presence of God. Ephesians 3.2 talks about this, that, that this wall, this barrier between Jew and Gentile was broken down by Christ at the cross. In Ephesians 3.2, we read Paul saying, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. See, this new information is given as I've previously written already, by which, that is by that mystery, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That's this previously unrevealed information about the body of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So the church could not have existed in those earlier ages because it was not made known to men. There's no revelation about it. And then he closes in verse 6. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. So now Jew and Gentile are united together in the same body. Ephesians 4.4, 4, there's one body. Ephesians 4.12, we're to edify the body of Christ. And the foundation... For this church is the apostles and the prophets. And this is not Old Testament prophets. It's New Testament prophets. That's why the order is this way. He, by reading the apostles and prophets, it puts the priority on the apostles. And it has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in the Greek, there's an article, noun, uh, conjunction, noun, uh uh, syntax here. Now, this isn't a Granville Sharp rule. Does Granville Sharp would say that the two are the same? But what this is showing is a tight connection between apostles and uh, prophets. They are closely connected and united together uh, as one class, the founding class of the church. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into one holy temple in the Lord. So Christ is the head of the church and there is this union, this wall has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. Again, we see in Matthew sixteen eighteen that Jesus viewed the church as future and in Ephesians two nineteen and 20, it talks about the union of the Jew and Gentile now in one body, and that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. Because Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church, you can't have a church before Jesus. So all of these are showing that the church began after the resurrection of Christ. And I want to close by reminding us of a passage in 1 Peter that uses this building imagery of the body of Christ, that Christ is the living stone who's rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. And then he talks to these believers you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, 
Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. That's referring to Jesus. You, the foundation, the cornerstone of this edifice of the church is laid by Jesus. So therefore, you can't have a church prior to uh, the New Testament, prior to the time of Christ. And so this makes it very clear to us that the church could not have begun uh, prior to the day of Pentecost. So there, this, what does this take us? That we understand there's a difference between the church and Israel, God's plan for the church, God's plan for Israel, and it teaches us that our position in Christ now is extraordinarily unique in this world in that we are members of the body of Christ and members of one another. So we'll come back next time and talk uh, a little bit more about the beginning of the church. And then we need to address some of the objections that are raised even within the camp of some dispensationalists called hyper-dispensationalists or ultra-dispensationalists who want to put the beginning of the church at the end of Acts or someplace in the middle of Acts. And I've never taught much about it because, frankly, I, I don't think it's a, really a strong intellectually or exegetically sustainable position. But over the years, I've had a couple of people who have uh, drifted off course and, and been swayed by some of these arguments. And I think inherently it can lead. I don't think it's necessarily anti-Semitic, but it can lead to that because it disparages the Jewish nature of the early church. And this is a real problem. And that's one reason why uh, ultra-dispensationalism or hyper-dispensationalism really never gained much of a foothold because dispensationalism is inherently pro-Israel and philo-Semitic. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time that we've had to study about the beginning of the church, the nature of the church, laying a foundation for understanding even more about what you are doing with the church in the church age and how how we as a local church should be organized in order to be more efficient and spiritually focused on the, the maturity of the local church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.